everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. We have on our show today, Sacramento attorney Linda Parisi. Welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. I thought we would talk today about the Capitol riot trial where you represented Mike Williams. And this case started way back in 2016 and didn't conclude until this year. Can you kind of describe what triggered this whole incident? Well, you know, this was a situation where um, I'll refer to it sort of as our side of the issue was going to the Capitol in order to stand up for human rights and for those kinds of democratic principles that are important to this country, that are the foundation of this country. And they were willing to stand up for those social and democratic values against a very aggressive uh, white supremacist Nazi type organization. And so they, they were at the Capitol and there was a clash that erupted. Uh, our position is as a result of the white supremacist Nazi organization. And why did this case end up going on so long? Well, it went for so long for a couple of reasons. One was uh, that they were also prosecuting the white supremacist group. Uh, that group engaged in significant acts of violence. That group engaged in stabbing of individuals. There was a lot of uh, physical aggression on the part of the white supremacist group. And so they did not arrest all of the people who were the aggressors, but some of the people who were arrested were then uh, prosecuted. And our case was um, sort of behind, if you will, that those cases to see uh, how they concluded. And ultimately, it resulted in a, uh, initially they had a hung jury and then resulted in a felony plea. And what was the role that your client played in all of this? You know, we were charged. There were uh, three people who were charged together. And they were really, um, they had placards and were standing up, uh, you know, for as I say, democratic principles. You know, uh, the thing that I continued to point out to the court, uh, as well as the district attorney, is there was no moral equivalency between the two organizations. It's not like it was 
either side of a labor dispute, you know, management versus labor. It wasn't that type of situation. The white supremacist stands for an illegal position, an illegal uh, discriminatory position against individuals. Uh, whereas our group stands up, as I say, for democratic principles. So there was, was no moral equivalency between the two groups. And our group um, had the courage to go to the Capitol against these aggressive white supremacists to stand up for principles that we as a country cherish. And it seems like that that is how this issue has kind of devolved. It's devolved into, hey, they're both bad. We should go after both sides. Yeah, and I disagree with that analysis. They, you know, we have rules in this country, uh, not just as our democratic principles, but laws against discrimination based upon race or creed or religion. And so the white supremacist group stands for an illegal position. And that is not a, a, an analysis where you can say, well, both people were bad. Both people, um, you know, stand for uh, aggressive positions. No, that's not the truth at all. The truth is, on one side, with the white supremacists, you have people who stand for illegal positions. On the other side, you have people who are willing to stand up and defend our democratic values. And so, you know, to put themselves at risk, knowing that they could get arrested, knowing that they could be injured. Several of their members were stabbed, ended up in the hospital. Several of their members ended up getting arrested. And so they, they really had the courage to put themselves on the front line. You know, we've seen that across the country where people who have been willing to stand up for democratic principles and values have suffered physical and personal consequences for their courage. Did you think that this case should be tried in the first place? I, my position was they should have never been arrested in the first place. So, uh, which obviously got the, the whole process started. Uh, you know, a lot of things go into the determination of, of whether once criminal charges are filed. A lot of factors go into consideration as to whether or not you should settle the case or take the case to trial. Certainly there's always a part of us um, who value and respect these democratic principles that want to go to trial, that want to have the community understand what they were doing so that they can be vindicated. But as you know, there is always a risk to going to trial, and that's a danger. And how do you explain away potential criminal conduct in terms of physical assaults and, and things like that that may have been instigated by the anti-fascists? Well, you know, I don't know that we saw a criminal assault. We saw people standing their ground uh, in the face of aggressive conduct by white supremacists. But, you know, it is always a fine line between um, a lawful order on a failure to disperse, a, you know, lawful uh, intervention in uh, demonstrations. Because uh, while the Constitution protects our freedom of assembly, 
and our right uh, to uh, engage in demonstrations, there are, are also restrictions on those rights. And what was the ultimate outcome in this case? Well, ultimately, we ended up entering pleas to no contest pleas to misdemeanors with the understanding that our clients would engage in some volunteer work, what's called alternative sentencing, so volunteer work in our uh, in a community organization, and that at the conclusion of the work, uh, and after a period of probation, that we would go back to the court and have the charges dismissed. Now, I'm just curious, because I think a lot of people are going to... Uh wonder about this. I mean, if what they were doing, in your opinion, was proper, uh, doesn't it discourage their actions if they're taking plea agreements? Absolutely. I'm not going to disagree with that. That's, that's part of the consideration, is that on the one hand, we say, well, you have this right, and we respect and value that you have the courage to stand up. And if we're saying that, how then do we enter into a plea agreement? If what we did was to be respected and valued, well, those are, that's what I say there. It's complex consideration of criminal charges. Uh, there are a lot of negative consequences. There's a lot of unpredictability. You can't always guarantee that the right thing will happen as you go through the criminal process. And so that's why plea bargains are oftentimes fashioned. And this plea bargain was fashioned in a way that was can result in a dismissal of the charges. But so, that requires them not to engage in this kind of conduct for a certain period of time, does it not? What it requires is that uh, they cannot engage in protest, uh, that, you know, and certainly not in unlawful protest. So that seems like a very steep deterrent to exercising their democratic rights. Well, it does have an impact. I'm not going to say it doesn't, because I agree with you. It does have an impact. And that is part of the consideration in resolution, because as I say, given the unpredictability and the impact it can have on individuals' lives, if they were to go to trial and get convicted, uh, weighs heavy in the analysis. But it, I agree with you. It absolutely has an impact on one's individual political expression. Were you satisfied with this outcome? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a yes and no. Uh, you know, yes, I'm happy that uh, my client does not suffer a felony conviction. I'm happy that he does not do any time in custody. I'm happy that it has a pathway to dismissal. So those are all good things that uh, professionally I'm satisfied with. On the other hand, it's the point you raise is that as part of this resolution, it has an impact on uh, Mr. Williams' right of expression, of political expression, political activity. And, uh, you know, for a, even though it's for a limited period of time, it is nevertheless limited during that period. And I... I really actually appreciate your answer here because a lot of times when I talk to attorneys, it's very black and white. Well, you know, they were facing huge exposure. This was a way to resolve the case in a way that it could go away. 
But in this case, it's a little different because the exposure was probably not that great in the first place. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the limits on future conduct uh, are kind of prohibitive in a political case. Well, uh, I think that the consequences, certainly to Mr. Williams, also to Ms. Polarka, had they been convicted of felonies, it was with significant consequences. And so uh, that was a, a considerable factor in analyzing whether or not to accept this negotiated disposition. And what kind of uh, helps us with the uh, resolution is once they've completed their community service, the prohibition against uh, uh, protest is lifted, except as to the capital ground. So it, it really was a nuanced resolution uh, in order to, to try to uh, achieve the quickest restoration of their right, to, you know, to engage in political activity. I, I want to oh, return to the issue of the anti-fascists versus the neo-Nazis, because I think, you know, this is kind of a core societal issue now. Um, And, and there's this big debate going on that, uh, you know, there's this kind of rise of white supremacy that we've seen uh, kind of leading up to the Trump election. And then especially after the Trump election. Yes. And that has pushed groups like the anti-fascists into a much more prominent role. They've been around for a long time. Uh, they've been active, but, but now they're drawing a lot of heat. How do you reconcile the mission, which is to stop, um, you know, white supremacy violence against some of the tactics being used? Well, I I think what we see in this political movement, as you've described it, um, and I don't mean to oversimplify, but the neo-Nazis against the anti-fascists, is the divide that we see in this country. And we have certainly seen on the white supremacist side this willingness to engage in this conduct that is aggressive, that is unlawful. Uh, We've seen almost permission uh, for them to state what are really antisocial positions about race and religion and uh, discrimination. And, you know, the criticism is, is that it has started from the top down, from the president down, that uh, he has not taken a stand that is consistent with our democratic values. He has not decried uh, the negative conduct by neo-Nazis. And as a result, there, it appears as though uh, society from our leadership is saying, well, that's an okay position. That's just a different position than anti-fascist. Well, no, it's not. It's an unlawful position. It's an impermissible position. And so that's what I mean by there is no moral equivalency. But I think when we see the strife uh, in society over that, a lot of it comes from, uh, you know, our leadership down. And 
You know, it's really interesting because this case happens in 2016. So this actually predates Trump and, and Trump's election. And, and in some ways, it kind of anticipates what we're going to see, right? Right. I, I, I mean, I think what you're seeing is that a lot of these demonstrations are a reflection of the political divide in the country. And um, and it's kind of a sad thing to say that we would have a divide in this country over the issue of white supremacy and neo-Nazis. We fought wars over those issues. Uh, we thought that our democratic principles had prevailed and those issues were in our history, not our past history, not in our current events. But, you know, the the fight for our democratic principles is an ongoing struggle and fight. It is not something that is won and then over. And this kind of anticipates what would happen in Charlottesville, right? Right. I mean, that's tragic what happened in, in Charlottesville. And, and in some ways, if you step back and you hear about that, you think, well, that couldn't happen in the United States. That's not who we are. That's not how we behave in this country. And yet it did. And yet we've also seen, you know, most recently, other acts of violence against religious groups. I, that's something that in, in some ways you would have never thought possible to occur in this country. And yet it happened. Although, you know, I, I, I guess I'll take the contrary argument. I mean, sure. that, that is the history of this country, is it not? It, it, it's racial segregation, it's racial discrimination, it's racial subjugation. And every time the people of color, the, the oppressed, have attempted to assert their rights, they've been met with extreme acts of violence. We, I would agree with you that we have a country and a history that is born from aggression. Not to, to be a, a history lesson, but obviously dating back as far as the American Revolution uh, through, uh, you know, obviously the Civil War and, and other acts. We've had labor issues that have been very contentious and very aggressive and violent. So I agree with you. We have a history that is born of some acts of violence and aggression. But this rise of white supremacy was something that I believe many people thought was an issue that had already been resolved. You know, through World War II, we, we settled these issues. Those are not democratic principles. Uh, we have, you know, equal rights amendments. We have passed all kinds of legislation to ensure that we don't have that type of discrimination. And yet now we have this public expression of impermissible positions by neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And I think, I guess from my perspective, you know, I've been recently going over some of the history of the civil rights movement and, and really the violent reaction to the civil rights movement, the the amount of violence that was spawned in that period, I think a lot of people don't really appreciate how much those civil rights workers 
as they went into the deep south actually put their bodies in harm's way actually put their lives on the line in a way that i think a lot of people don't really understand today i i would agree with you completely that uh that the civil rights movement in this country was born of violence and it was uh, born of the, the courage and the willingness, as you say, of civil rights workers to stand their ground, to get into the front lines, to fight and argue for correct principles that are, are embraced by our constitution, embraced by the rule of law against conduct that has been determined to be against the rule of law, to be against our democratic principles. That's why I say it's not good on one, it's not both sides being bad. We have good people on one side and we have people who stand for impermissible principles on the other side. And in some ways, our current uh, group of people who have the courage uh, to stand up for their political expression are following in the footsteps in many ways of our, our uh, past civil rights workers. And so I think what's shocking to a lot of people is that they thought this was of the past and it's clearly not now. Right. I, I think the good news is that you're really still talking about a fringe of people, right? I, I would agree. I think it's a, a, a larger group than we thought or certainly than I thought, I guess I shouldn't speak for anyone but myself. The group was larger than I thought standing for these neo-Nazi white supremacist positions. But I would agree with the characterization that it is a fringe group. Now, how is Trump tapping into this? Because I, I think that that's kind of the, the debate. You know, a lot of people argue, well, Trump himself says stupid things, but He's not really racist, or maybe he is racist, but he's definitely giving license to these groups in a way that didn't exist 10 years ago. That's correct. There's certainly permission given to state these antisocial, illegal positions that we did not have before. In some ways, our attitude towards uh, immigration reflects this white nationalist position. And that is not what our country was based on. And so um, in some ways, um, you see, as I say, from leadership down, permission that these white nationalist positions are acceptable. And, and that's dangerous. And, and now what we're seeing are, are kind of a speed of hate crimes. So we got killings at mosques, we have stabbings at synagogues. Um, is this is this something bigger that's emerging, or is this just more the same that we've seen for the last three or four years? Well, I, I really I don't know the answer to that question, obviously, but I I think it is of concern. Is it growing? Is this uh, acceptance of these um, illegal and antisocial positions, is the group that endorses that, is that group growing? Uh, and if so, that is obviously very dangerous to a democratic society. Um, it's, it's certainly uh, 
of significant concern what we have seen happen. Obviously, in the last few days, we've seen uh, tremendous aggression against a group based on their membership in this group. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that it is uh, the conduct is promulgated only by members of neo-Nazis or white supremacists, but certainly that fuels the conduct. So looking more broadly, are, are there other cases that you're working on right now? What kinds of cases are those? You know, uh, yes, there are. I Recently, I've had a couple of cases that involve uh, young people accused of very serious and violent crimes. And it, it really uh, reflects uh, the recognition that there are problems in many of our communities with how our uh, young people are not just treated, but what opportunities are available to them, what direction is available to them, what intervention is available to our young people. And I, it's a very serious problem. I, and I don't profess to have the answer to it um, other than to acknowledge we need to do something. We cannot uh, sit back and say, well, that's just kids being bad, and so we'll punish them. No, that's, that's not the whole answer. We need to think in terms of intervention and what can we do to help and support our young people so that, one, they can grow up that they're not getting killed in their community, that they can grow up. They're not ending up in uh, prisons for, with long, long sentences. Um, so what can we do to run interference on that and help and support our young people to become protect, productive members of society? What do you see as kind of the biggest challenge there? I think our biggest challenge is intervention uh, within the schools and the community to provide meaningful education where it is more than just what's going on in the classroom, that we are following up, that we are offering tutoring, that we are offering resources, that our schools are open as an oasis, not just for learning, but for our students to engage in um, productive and appropriate behavior. I know there is a cost associated to that, but that cost is far less than the cost of incarceration. If you just take away the human suffering of incarceration, and I mean the human suffering on both sides, uh, the people who have lost a loved one to acts of youthful violence, as well as the youthful offender. There's a significant human suffering, but there's also a significant economic cost. Let's put that money into programs that are likely to result in intervention and productive behavior as opposed to paying in the aftermath of that behavior. So I think we need one, uh, community schools and resources that are active within their community. We need programs and um, resources available for uh, vocational training both in the trades as well as to help kids who want to go on to college and that we also have pro programs designed uh, to help with employment. And I think if we do those things, you know, I would also, in a perfect world, like to add a component of 
for psychological support. Many households uh, that young people are growing up in have issues with domestic violence, have issues with uh, substance abuse, and with emotional abuse. And as a result, many people growing up in those households, even if they're at school, they're not in a, a place where they can really learn because of the chaos uh, that's going on in their life. And so what I'm talking about would require a significant commitment on the part of our, our government, but it's, I think it would pay huge dividends in the long run. I think you raise a good point because we've been talking about mass incarceration for the better right. part of a decade, and we focused on things like sentencing reform and diversion and things like that. We've done very little on the front end of all of that uh, prevention. Right. And it just seems and like, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I sorry, I'm sorry, but I agree with you. This, if we work on the front end, hopefully if we've instituted successful programs, we, we get to a very limited back end. We don't see as many of these kids in the criminal justice system, which is very expensive. But we don't seem to want to spend that money up front, even though, you know, I, I think the ratio is it costs 10000 maybe 12000 a year to educate somebody, costs 50000 to incarcerate. And you would right. think that they would want to spend more on the front end where it's cheaper and less on the back end. You would think, that's why, that's what I'm saying, the financial analysis, becomes clear what we should be doing and we haven't even factored in human suffering we're just if we just do a dollars and cents analysis it makes perfect sense that we put the money in on the front end yeah and i you know it it, it seems like there there's a whole opportunity and you know as much as you know we've been pushing on the back end trying to fix things it, it seems like we need that investment on the front end, and that, unfortunately, is not going to come from the federal government, at least right now. Probably not. I think I, a lot of it has to start at, at the local level as well as the state. You know, resources are the issues, of course. I mean, it's not to open a whole new topic, but, you know, with our approach to homelessness, we just... Uh, it is a question of allocation of resources, but I have a firm belief this is a very wealthy country. The question becomes, how do we direct our resources? Not whether or not we have sufficient resources. I, I believe we may not have resources to solve the problem immediately, but this country has the resources. It's just where are we deploying those resources? Well, Linda, that is all the time we have for the show. I want to thank you so much for coming on. It was my pleasure. That was Linda Parisi, an attorney out of Sacramento, and she represented Mike Williams in the Capitol riot trial, which is a trial that uh, the Vanguard probably covered as much as anyone. We covered it from front to back. And uh, it ended with a misdemeanor plea, um, which, you know, 
Um, on the one hand, got the defendants off the hook from felony convictions, but on the other hand, it prevented them from protesting and exercising their democratic rights, and it's definitely a trade-off. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for another episode. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.